0: Welcome to Radical Math Talk, the podcast dedicated to the revolutionaries in math education. I'm your host, Kwame Sarfomense. And on this podcast, I will highlight the incredible educators who are reshaping, redefining, and decolonizing the way that math education is taught in our schools. In other words, this will not be your typical math podcast. My goal is to center the stories and hidden truths that will not only ignite a cultural paradigm shift in math education, but more specifically, explore the multiple ways in which math can be used as a vehicle for social justice and anti-racist solidarity. So if you are ready for a math revolution like no other, then sit back, relax, and lend me your ears as we embark on this journey together. Enjoy the show. Welcome to a brand new episode of Radical Math Talk, the podcast for the revolutionaries in math education. I'm your host, Kwame Salfamenta. If this is your first time tuning in to this podcast, I welcome you and I hope that this will not be a last episode, that you come back for more episodes and new content because we have a lot more coming with the new series. Um, And if you are a returning listener or viewer of the podcast, thank you for coming back. I welcome you, and I hope that today's episode is one that you find informative, enlightening, and insightful. So, uh, before we get into the main conversation for today, I ask that folks hit that red subscribe button if you're tuning in from YouTube. This will allow you to get notifications on future content and new episodes of both Radical Math Talk as well as our parent podcast, I Danny Talk for Educators Live. Also, if you would like to make a donation towards that Danny Talk platform, uh, we accept donations via Cash App and Venmo. Uh, for Cash App, the hashtag is money sign ID talk 4 ed and for Venmo is at S M. So your donations will help to bring more guests to the show, and also to continue to build this platform so it can expand. All right, people. So we got another incredible episode today. And uh, today's episode, we're gonna be focusing on a lot of different things. Um, Obviously math is gonna be at the forefront of it, but we're also gonna talk about health and wellness and just the importance of entrepreneurship. And they do sound, you know, very different in terms of the fields they're in. But in a way, they come together to form something that is really powerful. And I think it's an episode that a lot of us can benefit from, especially myself, because, you know, I myself, I'm going on my own health and wellness journey. And, you know, I have a chance to share more about that uh, with tonight's guest so let's talk about tonight's guest uh she is a math professor uh she's out in houston texas but she's also like an up-and-coming like fitness girl like if you check her out on instagram she's always showing exercise videos doing all kinds of exercises Showing us different ways in which we can be healthy, and just being transparent about her own journey and how she continues to grow in the process. But she also is an entrepreneur. She she owns businesses. She has a nonprofit, which we'll talk about. She also has her own boutique store. So there's a lot going on in this episode. But I'm excited uh, to bring on uh, Doctor Tarsia Huber to the show to talk to us about all these cool things she's doing because I feel like there's something valuable that she's gonna drop tonight and we gotta be here to listen to everything. So let's get started.
1: Hey. Hello. Thank How you for having me, I'm excited. Yeah.
0: Thank you for coming on and taking the time to chop it up. So how's things going?
1: things are going good just taking it day by day you know it's a uh, thanksgiving week here i know it's gonna air later but i'm excited about a little break this week
0: <laughs> mm, I, I know that's right i know that's right and i know you know you're a mother and a wife so you know you have your family that you gotta tend to so
1: yeah
0: i mean how is it you know being with the family
1: Oh, it's good. So my husband is an educator as well. And so he's off this week. So that gives me extra hands around the house. So I'm excited about that.
0: (laughs) Awesome. 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 So usually when we start the podcast, uh, we have our guests share what we call the mathography. So all of us who are in this math field, we have an origin story, if you will that led us into this field that is so near and dear to our hearts. So I'm wondering how you came across math growing up, how you've been able to grow with it over the years and evolve in the process. So if you could just share just that life story, how it started, how you were able to grow with it and and where you are now with math.
1: Okay. Okay. So I have always enjoyed math. I never, ever thought about having a career in anything math, right? I was going to, I wanted to be an engineer. So that was my life goal when I was in school, K-12. I wanted to be an engineer because I like taking things apart and putting things together. Not really knowing what engineers did. I just knew it had something, it was something related to building things, right? So I wanted to be an engineer and- When I graduated from high school, I went on a few college trips with my aunt, who was a a high school counselor. I picked three schools that I applied to. And my first choice was a private school. I got accepted. And they offered me some scholarships, but not a lot of scholarships. My second choice offered me a full scholarship. And so my mom was like, take the money. Go where the money is, right? So I went. I chose the school that gave me the money. And so when I got there... I had to go to orientation and I had to pick a major. And so when I got there and I got ready to pick my major, they didn't have an engineering major. And so nobody told me to research schools that had the best engineering programs, right? And that's one of the reasons why I'm passionate about what I do now um, as a mentor to youth. But no one told me to do that, right? My advice that was given to me was take go where the money is, which isn't bad advice, right? Um, so I got there and there was no engineering major. And so I I called my mom. I was like, Mom, I have to pick a major and I don't know what to pick. She was like, I can't tell you what to pick, but whatever you pick, pick something you love. And so I thought about it and I thought about it and I was like, what do I love? What do I love? Well, I love math. I knew I love math. I didn't even know you could major in math. And so I looked on the list to see if math was an option and it was an option. And so I decided to be a math major. And it's interesting because Um, At the school I went to, I went to Stephen F. Austin State University, which is in East Texas. It's a small school, a small public university. Um, They put you in these groups and they have other students in there that uh, help you through the process. And everybody was like, you're going to major in math. Nobody majors in math. And if they do major in math, they change their major. So it was like a whole bunch of negativity. I was like, whatever. That was just like motivation to me anyway, to do it anyway. And so I decided to major in math. And so that's where my math journey started. I had no idea what I was going to do with a math degree. I just knew it was something I enjoyed. And so I just decided to major in math. I didn't know what I was going to do, though, with it.
0: Yeah, you and I have a similar story as far as college is concerned, because I also was a math major during my undergrad. And the funny thing is, I also didn't realize that you needed to actually research schools and different programs that they had. I literally chose uh, my alma mater, Temple university because one, they had a division one basketball program. Mm -hmm. And I thought, Oh, I get to be on March Madness. I can actually be on TV (laughs) and and be in a crowd and be all crazy. Like that's what I was thinking. And also the crimson color was close to my favorite color red. So I figure, okay, you got that going on. And then, you know, coming from a small town in Connecticut, I wanted to go to a a major city with a lot of black people that wasn't too far from where I grew up. And Philadelphia was the perfect city that met that criteria.
1: So I had all that
0: going on. But as far as the math major parts concerned, I actually started out as an actuarial science major because my father is an actuary. Okay. Now, mind you, I had no idea what an actuary is. I just thought, okay, I'm going to just follow my father's footsteps, try out this actuarial science. It allows me to apply my math skills and everything. And then right before the first day of my freshman year, I changed my major to math, and I stuck with it all the way through. And uh, probably it was the best decision that I made for myself, even though I only chose it because it was the only thing that I knew I was really good at. I didn't really have any career aspirations. I didn't know what I was going to do with the math or anything like that. I just knew that, okay, if I choose math, that's going to at least get me through undergrad. I don't know what I'm going to do with it,
1: Mm -hmm. But for right now, do math. (laughs) I was was on the same playing field right there because I didn't know what I was going to do with it either.
0: Cool. So I know at my school, um, in terms of the demographics in the math department, there weren't a, a whole lot of black people who were math majors. So whenever I was in math classes, I was either the only Black person or one of the very few in all my math classes throughout my five years. And it was just such an isolated feeling. So I'm wondering if you felt similar feelings during your undergrad, if it was like a a similar trend.
1: Yes, in undergrad, yes. Well, I would say my first, because I, I did come in with calculus credit because I took AP calculus, but I had to go back and take, I think I had to go back and take trigonometry. I don't know why I had to go back and take trigonometry. That's weird. I know. I had the calculus credit, so I didn't have to take Cal 1, but I had to go back and take trig. I don't remember why, but when I took trig, there was more minority students in that class. But after trig, once I got into the Cal 1s, 2s, 3s, 4s, the linear algebras, the differential equations, there was no other black students in the classes. Um, And then, so there was, it's kind of like a cohort because in my cohort, there were only seven of us in the class, my class that I was in, there were only seven math majors, I was only black, but there was a cohort above us, there were two, there were actually two, one was actually um, from Trinidad. She was from Trinidad and then one was African-American from uh, Houston. So that was surprising that there was actually two in that cohort. And so of course we clicked and we pushed each other through the program, but they were were above me. So I didn't really get to take any classes with them because they were already ahead of me. But yes, very isolated. No black professors either. There was not one black professor in the math department. So yes, very isolated.
0: See that part as well. I think all of my professors were either of Asian descent or Caucasian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then as far as trying to find like classmates that you can connect with, I mean, mm-hmm. I had a few, I had a few that I was leaning on for sure. And we'd look out for each other, um, go to the tutoring center and help each other out but it was far in between, really far in between. So I found myself many times just trying to figure out how to push through, especially during midterms, finals, when you really have to study and you don't even know, you know, where the heck you've been learning all this time. Mm-hmm. Even after going to office hours with the professor, like I had to go through all that. And it's amazing that I was able to uh, graduate when i think back like dang how did how did i graduate with all those struggles like it was rough it was rough for
1: sure. yeah i learned how to connect with my caucasian classmates like the classes um brought us together so we were able to connect on that level you know um it was like you had no choice this is you gonna push either you gonna y'all gonna push each other or what? What are y'all gonna do? So we we bonded, it was only seven of us. So we bonded and we pushed each other. We were taking the same classes together. So it was literally like a cohort.
0: Yeah, I, I hear that. Now, of all the classes that you had to take during undergrad, uh, which class did you find to be the most difficult? I know for me. It was probably a tie between probability and um, I want to say differential differential geometry was also a, a pretty difficult one.
1: So those for me, those two were tough. For me, I don't know why, but it was calculus two. It was calculus two. That was the only math class in my undergraduate. That I made a B in was calculus two. I made A's in all my other math classes. Um, but it was just something I don't know if it was the professor and the way he taught it, but calculus two just did not click with me.
0: I mean, what was the issue? Was it the, the integrals, the derivatives? Like, what was giving you problems?
1: Was it the revolutions? I think we did revolutions in, um the disc and all of those in calculus too oh. yeah you remember that <laughs>
0: yeah my memory is my memory is uh pretty it's not the best i mean it's a little over 20 years ago since i yeah. took those classes so
1: <laughs> yeah the revolutions so it was the integrals you know but when you start rotating the integrals around oh. and getting the disc yeah all of that mm. it just it was just tough for me for some reason.
0: Oh, it, it gets real. It, it, yes. it got real when we mm-hmm. started with the, with the revolutions for sure. Um, but it was, it was kind of weird because, like, I started off with the first three calculus classes one, two, and three. That's how I started, um, you know, undergrad. And then after that, I believe I took linear algebra, which I love because, like, oh, Dealing with matrices and determinants all day, I could do that myself. Love, love it. And then I took number theory as well, which was also pretty cool. A little challenging, but like I enjoyed it. Um, And and then it just got even more and more real. And it was like, okay, if I could just pull a C and just keep it moving, that's fine. Okay. And I was literally a straight C student (laughs) in math, you know, all throughout Mm -hmm. undergrad. I think my final GPA was probably a 2.3, 2.4. But then my non-math GPA was almost a full point higher. Like that's how huge the disparity was.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love, I was always a bookworm. So, and I'm a perfectionist. So I wanted to, do the best at everything. There was only like, I want to say two classes I made a B in and then my last semester, my last semester, one, the other one was computer science. I hated computer science. So it was Cal 2 computer science. And then I was an accounting minor because I was like, maybe I'll fall into some accounting stuff. I don't know. But I took an accounting class my last semester, cost accounting. I'll never forget. I made a C in it. That was the only class I ever made a C in. It was so heartbreaking to me. <laughs>
0: Hmm. what was what was tough about that accounting class
1: well you know what i don't really think it was tough i think it was more so of i had senioritis and i was just ready to graduate okay
0: that's also a legitimate reason as well for sure like nah y'all ain't getting more of my money let me just get up out of here <laughs> I <just> kind of
1: <laughs> towards the end because i'm pretty sure i had a good grade towards the end until i got to the end of the semester i was just like i'm ready to graduate
0: Mm, I feel that. I feel that to the core. (laughs) So you you graduate and then you do a master's program and now and then after that you decide, okay, I'm going to pursue a doctorate. So this is actually a perfect segue into what we call the show your work segment. So every math teacher has these three words in their vocabulary you have a student that comes up you know with some work to have graded you vet the work you review it you notice okay i see your answers but where's your evidence huh
1: <laughs> yeah where are the
0: steps i need you to show your work because if you don't show your work how do i know that you understand what's going on so in this so in our context showing Your work means that you got receipts, like you doing the work, you got the receipts and you have a whole lot of receipts um, just through your uh, entrepreneurial endeavors and just your doctoral journey, like all the things that you've been doing post undergrad. So I want to really delve into that um, to give people a sense of just the incredible things you're doing. So I want to start off with the doctoral journey. Especially as a black woman. And I've had a chance to interview a lot of black women, um, not just on this podcast, but on my um, other podcast, I Dane Talk for Educators Live. And the stories that they've shared with me in academia are just crazy. Like, some surprising, but not surprising, just knowing just the fabric of our country. But I'm mm-hmm. um, interested in knowing from you, being a black woman and going through that doctoral program, what were some of the ups and downs that you experienced um, in your journey?
1: Okay. So I'm going to, first of all, you were talking about show your work. If I could tell you how many times I emailed that to students just today because I was grading (laughs) notes and they weren't showing their work. They were just putting the answer. And I was like, uh, the answer, just the answer is not going to work. Okay. So I had to say that, but I (laughs) want to backtrack just a little bit to kind of, um, give my story on how I got to the doctoral journey. So sure. again, as an undergrad, I didn't know what I was going to do. My freshman year, I had a professor, two professors, actually, my chemistry and a math professor recommend me to go tutor in the tutoring center on campus. So I actually started tutoring in the tutoring center on campus. And when I was tutoring, I really enjoyed teaching people math. I really enjoyed helping people understand something that they were so fearful of. Because a lot of people would come in and they would be scared. They would have anxiety. And I would just help ease that anxiety. And I love that feeling. And then my sophomore year, we had what's called SI, which is supplemental instruction. I got recommended by another professor to be an SI leader. And it's basically where you sit, up in, a, you sit in a professor's class. Um, you've already taken a class, but you sit in there as support for the students. And then you host these study groups outside of class. So I started doing that. Like a TA. My, yeah, almost like a TA. Yeah, pretty much. Except I'm not grading. I'm just hosting, I'm hosting basically tutoring sessions and study groups outside of class. And then I, I assist the teacher in class with whatever they need help with. Um, so kind of similar to a TA. But yeah, so I became a supplemental instructor in my sophomore year. I was still tutoring. And so in that process, that's when I realized that I wanted to teach math. And so I I didn't know I had to have a teaching certification to teach K-12. So when I graduated with my math degree, I thought I was just going to be able to go teach. But come to find out, they said I needed a teacher certification and that I just couldn't go take the test. I had to go through a teacher certification program. And so my analytical brain was like, okay, a year and a half in a teacher certification program, two years towards a master's. And so I'm like, I'm going to get a master's for two years. Forget you know, what y'all talking about with this teacher certification program. And so I applied to two schools to get a master's degree. One of them was a private school. Again, if you know about private schools, they're more expensive. And so the, mm-hmm. school, that I, the school I received my undergraduate degree from, they was like, if you stay here, we'll pay you as a graduate assistant and allow you to teach uh, developmental courses while you work on your master's degree. And I was like, okay, more money. I'll take it. So I decided to stay at the school where I received my bachelor's and work on my master's as a graduate assistant. And I started teaching college level courses. And so then I realized, Oh, I can teach college level. You only need a master's degree to teach college level courses. And I don't even have to worry about, you know, going back to get a teacher certification. And so that's what, that's how my love to teach college developed. And so I started that process. And so When I met my master's out of all three degrees, my master's was the hardest degree. I cried many nights on that degree. (laughs) So that was the hardest degree. And so when I was finished, I was burnt out. And my mom was trying to encourage me to get a doctorate. She was like, you know, a lot of people can't get a doctorate and you're actually capable of getting a doctorate. You should consider it. And so just to kind of get her out of my ear, I applied to one program. (laughs) So I was like, I applied, I applied, but at the same time I was looking for jobs. I was ready to go work, I was ready to make money. I was tired of school. and so before I even graduated, I had a job offer to teach at a community college. and so and I applied to the doctor program and I was like, I'll just kind of balance it. but I never heard from the doctor program and I and I received job offers. So I ended up taking a job at Austin Community College, teaching math um and so once i graduated i already had the job lined out i never heard back i applied to texas a&m never heard back from them about whether i got accepted into the program or not so this is one thing i never got a response okay don't know what happened to my application but they never even responded so i didn't even think nothing of it because i really didn't want to do it at the time anyway uh, because i was tired of school so i started working as a community college instructor and I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. I loved teaching college. It was super flexible, was not a lot of bureaucracy, you know, not a lot of politics involved. I was able to be free and just teach how I wanted to teach. And I loved that. And I loved the fact that students were, you know, there were young adults, a lot of them fresh out of high school. And then I had a lot of students who were returning to school, non-traditional students. So I really loved it. But during my first year of teaching, I was like, you know, I never even heard back from Texas A&M about whether I got accepted into the program or not. I was just curious to know if I got accepted not really thinking, you know, now that I'm working, I could actually work on my doctorate. And So I started calling and asking questions, trying to figure out, you know, if I got accepted or not. And when I called, they were like, we don't see your application. You didn't submit an application. And I was like, yeah, I submitted." it. And so my long story short, my application got lost. The person that I talked to, they went on a mission to find it and they found it. And they said that it got lost in the transition of a new graduate director. So I don't know if that was true or not, but they ended up finding it. And then they end up calling me. They was like, we're going to evaluate it. We'll let you know. So they end up calling me and telling me I got accepted into the program. And so they were like, you know, do you want to do it? And I was like, well, I'm working a full-time job now. I don't think I can do it. <laughs> like, I just bought a house. I bought a house my first year working. So I was like, I can't just oh, wow. stop working. I bought a house, right? So I um, was talking and the person I was speaking with, they were like, well, you can go part-time. Uh, you can take some classes online and, you know, you can come in maybe like once a semester and take a class, which will be like once a, once a week. And so I was like, oh, I didn't know I could do that. And so I I contemplated it and I got back with them and I was like, okay, I'm going to do that. So I ended up working on my doctorate while working full time. So I worked on my doctorate part time while I was still teaching full time. So I was a commuter. I commuted back and forth. So be- I think because of that, I didn't have a lot of experiences that other people had. That were there full time. Right. But I did have Mm. some encounters, a few encounters. The first one being my application. Never. I never received a response from my application after I applied. Now, the other thing was I never I didn't really know the scope of doctoral work. All I knew was that I wanted to learn more. So my past my past advisors were pushing me to get a doctor in math. But to me, I feel like getting a doctorate in math was a selfish thing. Like it's an ego thing. Like I would go get this doctorate in math just to say I have a doctorate in math. When in actuality, I really wanted to know more about teaching math. I wanted to know more about how others learn about math. And that was like the extent of what I knew about a doctorate in math education. So once again, lack of knowledge, which is again why I'm big on being a mentor I didn't know to look into programs that actually had professors there that were researching things that I was interested in. And I knew that I was interested in finding ways to help African-American students be more successful in mathematics. And so one of my biggest struggles was Antium. I don't know if you know anything about Texas Antium. Very conservative. Um, Very few minority professors there, right? And so, and the ones that were there were mostly in the urban education program. And so one of my biggest challenges was not having anybody there that was interested in the work I wanted to do. And so that was a challenge Mm -hmm. because I really had no one to push me in the beginning. I really had no one to push me to, you know, look at the right stuff and to think about this or consider this and so forth. Now, I eventually got an advisor, and he was Caucasian, uh, my advisor. This is my, ac- my academic parents. Him and his wife are both professors at AM, doctor Capreros, uh, and they actually being, ended up being really helpful in helping me connect with people who were already doing research that I wanted to do, but just wasn't at the school. So I was able to get other people on my committee who were not professors at Texas A&M. So That was one of my biggest challenges. Now, at first, I thought my advisor was racist because of some of the things he said, like when he first introduced the deficit theory. I had never heard of the deficit theory, but when he was talking about it, I was like, "Uh, so what are you saying? Like, you don't think we're capable? You don't think blacks are capable of being successful? Like, so anyway, it was just his, it was his approach. It was the way he presented it but it was really just his way of pushing me to think about different perspectives. Right. So Mm -hmm. um, he asked him and his wife actually ended up being really helpful. Like I still lean and call on them to this day. Um, And so I I was blessed to have that, which I know a lot of people don't have that people who push them, connect them, like help them to think about and consider other things. Um, So I was really blessed to have that Uh, at first it was a struggle but then I eventually found it and it ended up being a blessing in the end. So I don't really have any Nothing. crazy, outrageous stories, just little things that happened along the way. Uh, well,
0: that's interesting. So you found your master's program to be more difficult than your doctoral program.
1: hmm.
0: Even even with all the research that you have to do with the doctoral program, the reading and everything, you still found that easier,
1: yeah. Because the master's program is your master's in math.
0: My master's was in um elementary education, I oh, went okay. to get my teacher cert.
1: So, a master's in math requires a lot of proofs. how did you feel about proofs
0: like conjectures and all that?
1: Yeah, um,
0: it was uh. It was a learning curve for me because I came from a K-12 experience where it was pretty much computation-based. Like, okay, Mm -hmm. we're just going to solve problems with the algorithm or formula, Mm -hmm. get the solution. So it wasn't until I reached undergrad that I started to deal with trying to prove conjectures and theorems like Mm -hmm. that was totally new to me
1: same for me it took
0: some time for me to get used to
1: yeah and so it was same for me it took some time to get used to and I actually ended up loving it in undergrad but in graduate school they took it up another notch and it's all Mm -hmm. it was like everything was all about proving stuff and the proofs were hard like the proofs were. They were extremely hard. Basically, you're trying to figure out how to go from A to Z with no hints or nothing. <laughs> you're just trying to basically create magic. <laughs> and so that was very challenging. So okay. to me, the doctorate was more busy work. The master's was more critical thinking. Not saying I didn't use critical thinking in my doctorate, but it was more like solving um critical thinking, try to connect the pieces and the dots. And, and most of the time, there's only one way to do it.
0: I hear, it. I hear that. When you put it that way, it, it makes sense for sure how that could be more difficult. All right, cool. So you mentioned in your doctoral program that you were focusing on helping Black students really understand math better. Right. Because that's something that seems to be a a stereotype when it comes to to us Mm
1: -hmm.
0: to the point where. Like, if you're a black person, you know, math is just never going to be a thing. Right. That's that's something that you that you hear. So you did a lot of research around this. Um, I know you had a chance to, I think, go to different high schools to just see how they interacted with math. And how you can make it more culturally relevant. So I'd love for you to just speak more about what you were able to discover um in your research and and how it allowed you to inform your own thinking around how we need to approach math with our young people.
1: And you know it's interesting because as you were as you were asking that question about you know, or, you know, making a statement about you being surprised that my master's was more difficult than my PhD. And I think it is basically similar to what we're about to talk about with culturally relevant math. Someone told me in my doctorate degree to make every assignment, every paper that I write to be related to my interest and what I want to do. And so everything that I was doing was related to finding ways to improve mathematics education for African-American students. And I think because of that, because I was super interested, I was super invested, I didn't really find it challenging. It was challenging, you know, writing, learning to write um, in academia was challenging. But as far as like the content, it wasn't difficult because it was something I was interested in. And so that's the same way that students feel in math classrooms when they are learning something that they're interested in. And this is what I found out when I was researching different high school students. When students, when you teach students math in such a way that it's relevant to them, that it's related to their lives, they don't even feel like they are learning math. When I did my dissertation, the students kept saying, we thought you were gonna come teach us math. I was like, we are learning math, but they were so focused on the context and what we were learning that they didn't even realize we were actually learning math. And so for me, culturally relevant pedagogy, Is basically making the content relevant to the students, relevant to what it is they're going through in their lives, relevant to what they want to be in the future, also relevant to their history, their past, you know? So there are so many different ways you can make the content culturally relevant. You can connect it to their history. You can actually use everyday things that they experience in their everyday lives. And so you can even look into social justice issues, um, And so you have all these different ways that you can bring the content in to connect it to the students lives. So just to give you some examples from my dissertation, one of the topics that we talked about was teen pregnancy rates. And so actually what I did was I studied this school. I studied what the students were going through. I actually gave them a survey like a who am I survey and they filled out things about themselves things about, you know, their environment and where they were from. And then I analyzed these surveys. I found overlapping commonalities, things that they had in common. And I used those topics to actually create math lessons related to them. And one of the things that the students kept saying was they were proud of themselves for not having any kids at their age. And so I was like, that's interesting. Like, why would Uh they say that? Well, after speaking to the administrators, it was a school that was connected to their school That was for teen moms. And so there was a lot of uh, students like near them that were teen moms. And so they they were acknowledging the fact that, you know, that could be them and they were proud that it wasn't them. And so one of the lessons that I developed was a lesson on teen pregnancy. And we looked at teen pregnancy rates over time. I don't remember the year span now, but basically the teen pregnancy rates followed a parabolic path. Where it um, it was a parabola that opened down, it went up, it reached the peak, and it started to go back down. And so we talked about how to actually do modeling, right? How to look at the data, put those data in, and create a quadratic formula that was closely related to the points that they were seeing. And we talked about things like what was going on, what did that mean, like teen pregnancy rates were increasing, then they reached the peak, and then they started to decrease so then the students began to question all on their own, why did the teen pregnancy rate start to decrease? And these were teen pregnancy rates across the U.S. And we looked at it by race. We looked at the teen pregnancy rates by race. We saw how it went up higher for African-Americans and Hispanics, but lower for Asians and Caucasians. And so they wanted to know more about the data. And they were forgetting about the whole math part because they wanted to know what was going on. They even started to research, you know, and I pushed them to try to figure out why. They started researching like, what what could it have been that caused the teen pregnancy rates to go down? And so they was like, maybe the condom was invented. Like they was coming with all of this stuff. It was like, maybe the condom was invented. So they researched when the condom was invented, but it was like before the time period of when the peak hit. So long story short, come to find out, they found out that around the time the peak hit was when sex education was introduced into U.S. schools. And so they found it out on their own. What happened to actually cause the teen pregnancy rates to go down? Sex education being introduced in schools, they concluded was, the, was, was helpful in causing, um, you know, an increase in, in increasing knowledge about sex education and things of that nature, and it caused teen pregnancy rates to decrease. And so that being said, when you take math and relate it to what the students are going through, they become more interested in and more invested in and they want to know more. They actually work harder. They actually become inquisitive. Yes, they do. And so that's my idea of culturally relevant pedagogy, taking it and making it related to the context of the students, what they're going through, you know, what's relevant to them and so forth.
0: And that's exactly how I like to approach it as well with my students. Um, and it makes sense making it culturally relevant. What I'm wondering, and this is a rhetorical question. I think you and I both know the answer to this question. But because we have people watching us, I think it's important to really delve into this one. Now, we see the relevance in what you just described and how it built up confidence in in your students and how they felt like, wow, like I'm actually doing math without even realizing it. We see the benefits. My question is, how come it's not as commonplace as it should be? How come more people aren't joining us for the ride, if you will, knowing the benefits that we've been able to experience?
1: Yeah, I think a couple of reasons. One thing is a lot of times, and I fall into this trap sometimes, too we do what we were taught right we were taught to teach Mm. traditionally like we show you how to do something and then you do it and so a lot of math teachers teach like that because that's how we were taught and so that's one of the things and i have to catch myself when i start to fall back in that trap like and it's easy right to do it that way it's not as easy when you start diving into like topics of social justice you know and a lot of a lot of math teachers are uncomfortable with discussing some of the issues that you could talk about that would actually increase the students interest and i think that's one of the biggest one of the biggest things is that the the level of, of uncomfortableness that it creates when you start trying to incorporate social justice into a math classroom and so and then it takes a lot of extra research as well like i had to do a lot of research just to create that lesson like i had to dig into the data and really find out what? How could I take teen pregnancies and related to algebra? And it just so happened I ended up finding data that was uh, parabolic in nature, and so I, I believe that's another reason too. Like it takes extra effort on our parts as teachers, and again, it makes it easier to just do what you've been what you've been taught to just you do, I do, or I do, you do.
0: Right, and knowing that this is something that happens pretty often, like this trend of traditional math teaching, you took it upon yourself to just say, you know what, I want to go ahead and start a nonprofit that deals with this very issue of math anxiety and also just giving, putting me in a position to give confidence to students who look like me Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a math, right? So you started making awesome things happen. So mm-hmm. acronym for for math. What propelled you to do that, and what's the mission of the organization? Because I know it's been in operation for a little over a decade at this point.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So yeah, talk to us about making awesome things happen.
1: So making out some things happen, the idea came about because when I first started teaching at the community college, I started teaching college-level courses. And the college that I taught at was a diverse campus. So there was a good mixture of African-American, Hispanics, Caucasians, and Asians. But I was teaching college-level courses, and they were all full with Caucasian and Asian students. And so I started asking my colleagues, like, why do I not have minority students in my classrooms? And they were like, they're all in developmental courses. And I was like, huh? And so that was a surprise for me. So I start the next semester, I started teaching developmental courses. And lo and behold, I had a huge population of minority students in my developmental courses. And when I started teaching those courses, a lot of my students lacked basic foundational math skills that should have been developed in elementary and middle school. And so that's what increased my desire to want to work with younger kids. I was like, kids need to be able to have this strong foundation at a young age so that by the time they get to uh, college, this is not an issue, right? And so that was the the original concept of why I started. And actually, that wasn't even, that wasn't how math started that was basically, that was how I started working with young kids. So I started volunteering at the Boys and Girls Club. I started partnering with, I was in Austin at the time, Austin Independent School District. I started giving my students, because I was still teaching college level courses, I started giving my students extra credit for coming out to tutor. So I was going into the inner city Boys and Girls Club, and we were going in there and we were tutoring. I was, you know, encouraging my students to come out and help. And then I had this great idea to bring the student on campus and have a summer program. And so I was looking for funding for the program. And as I looked there, all the organizations were like, are you a 501c3 nonprofit organization? And I was like, no, I didn't even have any idea what that was. And everybody kept saying, are you this? Are you that? And I was like, nope, nope. And I kept looking and one company finally said, well, we will give you X amount of dollars if you become a 501c3 organization so i was like okay i found money i just got to do this one thing so i researched how to become a 501c3 organization i saw the application originally i wasn't going to fill it out because it was so long oh before that company told me that i looked at the application i saw it was a 30 some page application at this time it wasn't even online you had to fill it out by paper and mail it in and I was like, that's too long. I'm not going to fill it out. But when I found the organization that was going to give me the money, I was like, OK, I'm going to go ahead and fill it out. The money is worth it. Right. To be able to fund this program for kids to come to campus and do all of these fun activities. And so I filled out the application, had a lot of naysayers that said it won't be done in time. It takes too long It never get approved the first time. It usually take a year. They go back and forth. They tell you to change this, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, I filled it out. I prayed over it, submitted it. And 42 days later, it was approved. I had submitted it in February. It got approved in April. Went back to the company, said I'm a 501c3 nonprofit organization. And they they did what they said they were going to do. They gave the money. And then I was able to host this summer program where I brought elementary and middle school kids, Yeah, elementary and middle school kids, I was trying to remember if I started off with both, but yes, I did. I brought them to the campus. We did summer programs. We did activities. We did things to make math fun. We were implementing culturally relevant pedagogy, and we were building their math identity, right? We were increasing their math confidence. We were helping them with math anxiety, and so that is how math started, and so we've been doing summer programs ever since then, tutoring programs, and now we're stepping into the professional development realm, so we're just trying to find ways to just invest in our children, our kids and increase that, increase that confidence in them. So the mission of the organization is to help students to, to help traditionally underrepresented students to develop mathematical proficiency through the use of culturally relevant pedagogy. And also we um, aim to increase the number of minorities pursuing STEM careers.
0: All right, awesome. I was going to ask you about whether you do work with teachers to implement uh culturally relevant instructional practices. So I see that you are already on top of that. So that's what's up.
1: Yeah, we're just starting. Just starting. Actually, we we're building a virtual platform now and then we are going to start promoting heavily for face-to-face trainings.
0: Ah, right, cool. All
1: right. Okay.
0: Yeah, looking forward to see how how that looks at the end. So we've been doing a lot of talk about math, but I do want to segue into some of the things you're doing outside of the classroom. So first and foremost, um, for those who follow you on social media, um, people know that you are really into health and wellness. Um, You've been very open about your journey um, through it. Um, I myself I'm going my own journey uh where you know I'm being intentional about my water intake so I got my bottle right here gallon yeah, every day like I'm on a little
1: bottle.
0: <laughs> uh, been doing that for wow I guess about four months now
1: That's good.
0: um and then just exercising maybe f- at least five times a week <laughs> which, I had never done that consistently prior to, you know, doing the program that I'm doing. Um, And, like, I've been able to lose close to 30 pounds just from this program over the course of that time. And I've seen my eating habits change. My energy levels have gone up. So, like, like, I know how it makes me feel, but it's a lot of work. It is a lot of work just to get up in the morning and just say, man, I'm just going to exercise, even though you don't feel like it. So I'm interested in knowing from you, how has your journey influenced your life and just impacted your role, not just as an educator, but just as a wife and also a mother? Because you're modeling these things to your children. So so talk to us about that.
1: (laughs) So, um. Well, first of all, when you get married, you get happy. And what they say, you put that happy weight on. <laughs> so I did de- I definitely gained a lot of weight once I got married. And then I gained more weight when I had my first child. Then I gained even more weight when I had my second child. And I had just got into this place where I was complacent. I was complacent at the weight I was at. You know, you want to lose weight, but you're not doing nothing about it. I was at that, I was in that place. And I was, I wanted, I had this mindset that I wanted to lose weight, but I wasn't doing anything about it. I was exercising here and there. Like you said, it wasn't consistent. I definitely wasn't eating healthy. <laughs> I've never really eaten healthy all my life. I've always had these bad eating habits. And so it wasn't until, well, first it was Uh, I went to the doctor and my doctor told me I was a pre-diabetic and I was like, oh, no, I refuse. I come from a family of diabetics and high blood pressure. And I was like, no, I don't want that. I don't I don't like taking medicine, first of all. So I don't want to be taking medicine. And so I um, I was like, "Okay, I'm going to do something about it. And so I left the doctor. I was super motivated, but it didn't last long. Right. I fell right back into my old habits. And so. It was. So that was in May of 2019. And then it wasn't until that I really got serious in October of 2019, we lost my father-in-law and we he passed away. He had health issues. And so, you know, after he passed away, my husband and I both, we really got serious about just our priorities and, and what we thought was important in life and just wanting to be healthy for our kids so that we could be around longer for them. And so we both really just got serious about taking care of ourselves. And so my my health, health journey started in really October of 2019. And since then, I've been working out consistently. And so the workout part, I actually love. It helps me to balance, you know, stress, the stresses of being a mother and a wife and a, a, a full-time employee and an entrepreneur. So, you know, all trying to balance all that can be stressful, but working out helps me put that extra balance in it. It helps me relieve that stress. My biggest struggle is the eating right part because like I said, I've had 30 something years of bad eating habits and trying to change those are challenging. And it's like, I go through these periods where I'm, I'm eating good, I'm eating healthy, and then I might cheat for a little while and then it's hard to get back. It's hard to get back to it. And so, and that's what on my Instagram, I'm just sharing, you know, what I'm going through, working out. And my whole reason for sharing that is to try to motivate other women who are in a place where I was, where you're just content. You're not really taking care. You're you're so focused on taking care of your family, your husband, your children, your parents, if you're taking care of them, that you just kind of forget about yourself. And so my whole purpose of sharing my story is to motivate other women to don't forget about yourself. Like if you don't take care of you, you're not going to be here to take care of anybody else. And so I want to take care of me so that I can be here to take care of my parents if I have to, to take care of my kids, you know? And so that's my whole purpose of sharing my story on Instagram. And so I'm all about being whole, healthy, physically, spiritually, and mentally. And so that's that's where I'm at in my life right now. I'm just letting my light shine and just doing what makes me happy, doing what I'm really passionate about, and just encouraging others to do the same.
0: That's what's up. I, I think in my situation, the harder part is the exercising. Mm-hmm. The eating part is is, you know, it was a transition initially, but I feel like I'm thriving in the eating part. Like
1: I'm
0: eating the healthiest I've ever eaten. Like I'm actually eating green vegetables. <laughs> I've actually developed a palate for healthier foods. And in terms of how to, how I curb the cheating, the water helps. That's one. Um, I also, inter- I also do intermittent fasting. Mm-hmm. So, like, I don't start eating until noontime. And then my window's from noon to 8 o'clock at night. And then 16 hours, I'm just drinking water. Um. So, I mean, that's helped. But I think with the exercising, I don't love exercising, but I love how it makes me look in the mirror.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah i actually love it and i think i love it now because since covid i've been working out at home well i was loving it before too but i think if i had like a hard trainer like some people do i probably wouldn't love it but before covid i was going to the gym and doing the, the workout classes which i loved also like i love to dance you know just doing a little fun little workout step aerobics and all of that um but now that i work from home Life has been more stressful. People think, "Oh, you got a maid, you work from home," but actually, life is more stressful because my kids are at home. So I'm trying to balance, you know, teaching, taking care of my kids. I'm cooking lunch for them. I'm cooking breakfast. You know, it's like constant. Like I, I need, I'm needed, right? And so working out is like that escape for me. It's that, it's that me time. That time where I can just let go, and it just helps relieve all the burdens. You know, it, I mean, praying too. Praying is that me time as well. But yes. working out is another me time that helps me to like release my stress.
0: <laughs> so you've been bringing up balance throughout our conversation. So let's talk about balance mm-hmm. because I'm like, man, she's doing the most, right? A like, lot. <laughs> on top of being a wife, a mother, and of course, an educator, you also own a boutique, which, we, which we're which we going to talk about a little bit. And you're trying to stay committed to your diet and exercise regimen daily. How are you able to maintain a healthy balance between all those things that you're trying to do? Because for a lot of people, that is a challenge.
1: Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. you
0: seem to have figured some things out. Maybe not everything, but you, you have some things figured out clearly. So if you could just kind of share some of that magic with us, so we could also try to get close to your level.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I actually just made a post of a quote because I post quotes on Instagram as well. And the quote was, I had to pull it up. You will never find time for anything. You must make it. And so I'm, I'm mm-hmm. learning this as I get older. Like I can't just, wait and think i'm gonna find the right time to do stuff i have to make time for it so i do a lot of planning i do a lot of writing out in my calendar of like setting aside time to work on specific things like i have specific days i'm gonna work on this i have specific times i'm gonna work on the boutique i have specific times i'm going to spend with my kids for specific times i'm gonna spend with my husband like i have to plan that out Because if I don't, it'll slip my mind and I'll forget about it and it won't happen. And so you really do have to like plan, like you have to write it out. You have to set aside time. So like at the beginning of the week, I set goals, what I want to get done. And then I try to, and I don't always stick with my plan, but at least I have it written down and I know this is what I need to do. And so that really helps a lot with getting everything done because I'm writing it down and I'm setting aside a time. I'm being very intentional about what I'm working on, how much time I'm spending on it. And um, and I, I'm still not, you know, I still haven't mastered it, but I've started it. And that's what has helped me to balance everything so far.
0: Right. But the good thing is when you do plan, even though it doesn't go, it's not to a T, you at least have a foundation that you can fall on. Mm-hmm. And you're not coming in just not having an idea of what to do. So that's always uh, crucial. Mm-hmm. But but you have a boutique. Mm-hmm. So you in the fashion a little bit, I see. Like I, I actually uh peeped out the, the Greenwood boutique website, and I was like, yo, this there's some nice clothes right here. Like you have some outfits, you have you know different colors, styles, and designs. So let's talk about that. Um, what gave you the idea to start a boutique <laughs> on top of everything that you're doing? And what's that experience like um, running your own uh, boutique and having your own clothing line and all that?
1: Okay, so how this came about. So basically, my husband is, um, he's a videographer and a photographer. He's into film. And TV and all of that directing, and so he wanted to um start a series highlighting Black-owned businesses. And so we started this series highlighting Black-owned businesses, which made us research Black Wall Street, which is which the one in Tulsa, Oklahoma, that was destroyed by the race riot in 1921 that happened on Greenwood Ave. And so that's where the name come from, Greenwood. And so we started this YouTube channel where well, we were just going around and interviewing Black-owned, Black-owned businesses or Black entrepreneurs, and we were highlighting their businesses. So we had this idea, we want to create this Black Wall Street, but basically online where people can go and search Black-owned businesses. All of this was before George Floyd, you know, when people started wanting to support Black-owned businesses. Before then, it was really hard to find Black-owned businesses. So we started doing this in 2019, yeah, we started at the we started at the end of 2019, and then this was once this was after my father-in-law passed, and we started really focusing on our passions and prioritizing what was, you know, important to us. And so then, as you can imagine, 2020 came and COVID hit, and it slowed us down. And it we were actually going and visiting businesses, but we couldn't go visit anymore. And so we started interviewing some people virtually, but it just wasn't the same feel of actually going to visit those businesses. And so, but just from the interviews we did with black entrepreneurs, we began to get really inspired to start our own businesses. And so we actually started a clothing line, which a long story short, I'm not going to go into the details. It was a failed clothing line because we had trademark issues. We had people oppose our trademark. And so, and so we actually started selling clothes that we were going to put on our um put our logo on that we hadn't put on there yet but we were like okay we're just getting rid of these clothes and basically we started selling the clothes and i was and i started modeling the clothes and i just kind of fell in love with it my husband was like let's just change from doing the clothing line to just regular clothes like wholesale clothing and we just tried it and I actually fell in love with it. At first I was against it because I'm not really a fashionable person. I like to look good, but I'm not like a fashion guru. So that's why I was against it. My my confidence levels in fashion wasn't that great. So I was kind of against what? it at first. <laughs> so hey, I fooling love, me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I actually love it now. Like I love ordering the clothes. I love modeling the clothes I love selling the clothes even though my goal is to eventually outsource the modeling part but I actually love it now and so it's so much math involved as well you know ordering clothes you've got to figure out you know how many sets you want to order what you're gonna sell them for what would your profit margins be what's your break even how many you need to sell to um, break even? You know, how much do you want to invest back into your business? It is a lot of math involved. And, you know, I really think it's a great experience, too, for me working with kids, because a lot of times kids will say, well, I'm not going to go. I don't need to go to school. I want to be an entrepreneur or, you know, I don't need math. I'm going to be an entrepreneur. Well, there is so much math involved in being an entrepreneur. And you have to have great math skills in order to be a successful business, to have a successful business. And so I'm really enjoying the boutique. I'm enjoying like I said modeling the clothes. I'm enjoying the math trying to figure out the, you know, problem solving, figuring out how many I order, how much I'm going to sell them for, how much profit will I make if I sell this many or that many. So I'm always like creating equations. I keep a spreadsheet where I'm creating my equations for my break even points and so forth.
0: <laughs> so I <I'm> Ah, <laughs> uh, that oh, that's what's up you also graph your projections as well?
1: You know what? I haven't graphed my projections. That's something I need to start doing. But, you know, we just switched um, over to Shopify. So we were using Squarespace as our platform at first. We just switched over to Shopify. And Shopify has so many features in it that it does a lot of that stuff for you. Like It calculates your profit margins and all of that. Whereas before in Squarespace, I was having to calculate all of that on my own. But Shopify is like an enhanced platform that does a lot of the data analytics for you.
0: Ah, cool, cool. That's what's up. All right. So, you know, we a little over the hour. So it's time for that lightning round to okay. Close it okay. Out. So the light, so the lightning round is just basically a chance for folks to get to know you outside of the math space outside the classroom. So these are just some quick hitter questions to close us out. Um, And the first question that I have is just your favorite self-care activity. What are you doing for self-care these days?
1: So working out, working out is self-care for me and praying is self-care. I pray a lot. So those things really help me to, um, really helped me to just release, relax, relate, you know.
0: <laughs> ah, cool. Favorite math concept to either teach or learn.
1: Oh, that's a good one. So favorite math concept to teach. So I love I love trigonometry, but <clears throat> excuse me. I love teaching college algebra because I love taking it and making it relatable, taking these abstract concepts. And making it applicable to their to students real life, so I love teaching about the functions, the quadratic, the linear, the polynomials, and so forth.
0: All right, cool. Um, a book that you're currently reading.
1: So I'm currently reading uh Lolo Jones's over it, but I wanna I want to talk about a book I just read, which is Tyler Tyler Perry's Higher is Waiting. I just read that book. It was so good. I read it again. I read it two times back to back. That book was super inspiring. And if you haven't read it, I want to recommend that you go read that book. Super inspiring, super motivating. And it's just a good book overall. So I definitely recommend that book.
0: All right, nice. Most grueling exercise you've ever done?
1: Burpees. I hate burpees.
0: Oh my, I just did those the other day. Just like, the, ah, they got to get back up, down.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh. I did some today. I was going to try to do 50 today, but I couldn't do 50. I did 30. What?
0: Shoo. <laughs> She's like, I was going to do 50 today, but I just said, I'm going to do 30. Like, I 30 is a small number.
1: <laughs> Shoo. I, I, I struggled to
0: get to 30. <laughs> Yeah, oh, that was wow. a tough. Oh, I'm
1: just gonna do. I'm just gonna do thirty. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that was a struggle
0: yeah. too. Yeah. Ooh, burpees are no joke though. But they help though. They definitely yeah. help. That's
1: the only reason I do them because I know they're gonna benefit mm-hmm.
0: me. I know that's right. All right. If you can invite three influential figures, dead or alive, to dinner, who would they be?
1: So one, I would say Jesus. I'm a Jesus lover. So I would love to just sit at the feet of Jesus and get all the teachings. He got to tell me all his wisdom. Right. And then second, I'm going to say Tyler Perry, just because I read that book and it was so influential and so inspiring. He had so many gems to share. So I would love to just meet and have dinner with him and just let him just pour into me. Like give me all that you can give me to help me be successful in this life. Right. And then the third person, I'm going to pick someone from academia, Dr. Gloria Ladson-Billings. Uh, she has inspired a lot of my work, actually. That is where the whole culturally relevant pedagogy came from. And so I would love, yes. I've met her before, but never had like conversations with her. So I would love uh, to have dinner with her and have conversations with her.
0: Oh, I am so jealous. You, Yeah, that is uh, the godmother mm-hmm. of culturally relevant pedagogy
1: mm-hmm.
0: um that's like goals for me like yeah. if i had a chance to meet her in person like i don't need no gifts after that like i don't need no christmas gifts no birthday gifts just let me have a conversation with her
1: <laughs> yeah i met her i took a picture with her but i didn't get to have a conversation with her
0: ah uh, well hey that's that's better than most people.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: All right. And I know you are a Delta.
1: Yeah. My wife is a Delta as well. Oh, yes. my She's a Delta.
0: <laughs> Um are you currently following the oh you heard? I don't know. <laughs> I
1: heard her. Oh, you heard her? Yeah. <laughs> you
0: heard, yeah, she heard you, man.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, are you? Following the convention this year uh, from Atlanta,
1: so I haven't been keeping up with everything, but I have some friends who went, who I've been watching, watching their lives, watching them on social media. <laughs> but yeah, with Lettucey, I was so excited about that. I don't know if you saw oh. um, Lettucey there. Yeah,
0: yeah, just a powerful list of uh, honorary mm-hmm. members. So obviously, like I can't watch it. Mm-hmm. Just because of protocol, but you know, just hearsay from, mm-hmm. from my wife, I was able to file through what was going on. But um I did get a chance to experience some of it when it was in Vegas mm-hmm. a few years back. Um and then that was cool. That was cool. Just just seeing all the just all the women in the red and the white and just the, yes. It's a, it, it, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. It's beautiful. Like it, it was just a beautiful sight. Yeah. Um, uh, for sure. Awesome. So, Dr. Tarcia Hubert, thank you so much
1: thank for you coming for on me.
0: to Radical Math Talk. Uh, this has been a, a dope conversation, and um, I hope we can have another one in the near future.
1: Yeah, I'm down.
0: Yeah, for sure. So uh, before we let you go, if you could let people know how they can follow you on social media and also just the different website. It's so math website, Greenwood Boutique, you know all that good stuff. How can we connect with you?
1: Okay, so you can follow me on Instagram at Dr. Period T. Hubert. So my Instagram handle is at Dr. Period T. Hubert. And then I'm on Facebook as Tarsia Hubert. I'm not active on Twitter, but you can find me on LinkedIn as well at Tarsia Hubert. My nonprofit organization website is Making Awesome makingawesomethingshappen.org. My boutique website is greenwoodboutique.com. And then my husband and I are also opening an event and content creation studio in Houston called Greenwood Studios. We all about Greenwood. Um... So that is opening in January of 2022. So y'all can look us up. Our Instagram handle is at GW Studios HTX. That's at GW Studios HTX. So look us up and we will be hosting events, all kinds of events in Houston, some STEM events as well. So make sure you follow us to get um, updates on what we're hosting.
0: Y'all not playing. Y'all not playing.
1: Not at all. <laughs>
0: But thank you again, Dr. Huber, for coming on. And uh, we hope to connect soon.
1: Yeah, definitely. Most definitely. Thank you for having me.
0: Right. Have a great night. You too. All right, y'all. So we're about to end another fantastic episode of Radical Math Talk. And as I always tell you all, wish you all good morning, good night, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. And we're going to do this again another time peace out everybody thank you for listening to today's episode of radical math talk make sure to subscribe to the podcast on apple podcast anchor spotify and all other streaming platforms we are always striving to provide you with quality content so if you love what you heard today please leave a review on apple podcast and to check out the video episodes of the podcast you can visit our website at IdentityTalk4Educators.com. 4, 4, I'll say it one more time. Identity Talk 4 educatorscom Thank you and have a great day.